0: This is Yudah HaKohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you are listening to the Next Stage Podcast. As we approach the ninth of Av, Kishabah Av, uh, a day on which the people of Israel mourn several calamities, but really tend to focus in on the destruction of Jerusalem and of our national framework uh, by the Romans roughly 2,000 years ago, you know, one of the major themes of that chapter of our history was the factionalization of our people and uh, the mutual hostility uh, that a lot of us experienced at the time the inability of different factions within israel to see the value or perspective of the other which ultimately spiraled into um, violent civil war as we were locked in an anti-imperialist struggle against the roman empire Uh, This, of course, was used by the Romans to their advantage, and they came in and crushed us uh, as we were unable to unite. And it's hard not to see the parallels in Israeli society today. For the last several months, we've seen some pretty intense polarization of Israeli society, ostensibly around the issue of judicial reform, but there could be something deeper at play. And in order to really... Uh, give voice. I know that it's not the first time we've brought uh, opponents of judicial reform onto the show, uh, but I think they're all coming from different angles. And uh, I asked Paul Gross to join us on the show. Paul Gross is uh, an organizer uh, specifically for Olim in the protest movement against this government and its judicial reform legislation. Paul, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Yuta. Thank you for inviting me. Um, and uh... Particularly as you say in these uh, times, it's um, it's great that that you're doing this kind of um, this kind of work, bringing different voices on. Um, so yeah, I'm uh, originally from the from the UK, from England, as people can probably tell from my accent. Uh, I've been here for about 16 years. Um, prior to my aliyah, I was um, actually I was very active in um, in the in in the UK in um, pro-Israel advocacy, uh, both on campus and, and elsewhere. And I worked um, for the Israeli Embassy in London uh, in their Hatzparah department, their Public Affairs Department, and as the speechwriter for the ambassador. Um, since um, since being here, I've I've done a few things, but primarily these days I'm uh, I'm writing and and uh, lecturing on Israeli politics and history um, for a few places, um, and I've been published in a few um, outlets, both in Israel and uh, the United States and and the UK, and. I um, I got involved in the uh, the protest movement, as we call it, the or the pro democracy movement from our perspective, the anti anti judicial reform uh, movement, um, because I really saw this as um, not just um, another policy that I didn't like. Um, plenty of governments <laughs> in my time here in Israel have had policies I don't agree with, um, but as something much more fundamental um, and really um, something that would change. The nature of the state of israel um and that's that's the uh that's really where i'm coming from and we can we can go deeper into why i think that is and, and specifically what i mean by that but um but that's really where i'm where i'm coming from and why i see this as such an important fight
0: okay well that's already a lot um, the first question i guess i'd ask you just because you know when i look at the two sides of this issue in israeli society right now uh, i think it's fair to say and you'll Tell me if you disagree that both sides of this debate genuinely see themselves as fighting for democracy both sides might define that differently but i think both sides believe themselves to be fighting for democracy and i think that both sides also genuinely see themselves as punching up against some kind of authoritarian regime would you say that's correct or do you have a different perspective
1: with a very small nuance i would agree so i would i would i do agree that certainly my side um would would see this as fighting for democracy mm-hmm. and i think that the majority of the other side um would also say the same i do think the other side also includes people who i think would um at least if if they're not being recorded um would say that they don't have a lot of truck with democracy um and don't think it's very important um but um but that's but but i don't think that's the majority of certainly not majority of the public uh in israel who who support the reforms in my view um and uh in terms of punching up yes i i think that's fair i think that i i, I assume you mean that uh if the protesters are, are punching up against the government then the the pro-reform side feel themselves be punching up against some sort of amorphous liberal elite?
0: I wouldn't even go as far as to say amorphous liberal elite. I think it's very clear that the entire upper echelons of our security establishment, our business sector, the tech sector, certainly the media, have basically come out on the side of the Supreme Court. And mm. and, and I think there are a lot of people who say, wait a minute, we won we an election. Uh, I also think that... Both sides are defining democracy very differently. I'd be very interested in hearing your definition of democracy given as you're certainly experiencing yourself fighting for it at the moment.
1: Yeah that's a great point I think you're absolutely right I think they are I think they are hundred defining democracy differently. So I think uh, my side I mean I don't want to speak for everyone but certainly my assumption is that I speak for, for most of the people that I'm standing shoulder to shoulder with in protests, um are fighting for um liberal democracy in the um sort of understood sense in the I think broadly in the West of um majority majority rule um guaranteed through uh elections and representatives sent to uh sent to a legislature with and this is this is the important bit at least in term in this context um with uh, checks and balances uh, to ensure that the majority do not abuse their power mm-hmm. um, and that certain liberal, um, and by, by this I'm of course mean small L, classical liberal, not liberal in the American sense, um, sure. but liberal um, principles such as freedom of speech and civil rights and, um, the, and minority protections and the rule of law, are protected, um, and that the majority isn't able to ride roughshod over those uh, over those values. And this, of course, is the the crux of the matter for the for the for the protest movement, which is to say that um, their belief strong belief is that the um, the end result of the uh, reforms that the government is putting forward, at least in the form in which Yurif Levine and Simcha Rothman um, have uh, tabled them, um, would lead to effectively a uh, majority with with pretty much untrammeled power and unrestricted power. Mm-hmm. Um, my understanding from the other side is that they see democracy very differently. And again, I, I don't think everyone on the other side of, of this debate thinks the same on this, but I think that certainly um if you listen to someone like Yuriva Levine the justice minister who I think is in many respects the principal ideological mover of these reforms um then he sees democracy in what I think is a very limited um and um hollowed out way which is to say that um I think it's I think he's even on record saying this um albeit some time ago when he was a much less high profile figure um, that when he was asked um, what how he defines a Jewish and democratic state, he essentially says it's a Jewish state, first and foremost. And the democracy element is that this is how we choose our government. We have a democratic system of choosing a government. We have elections. For the Jews. Um, and, for me, and, and as far as I'm concerned, democracy begins and ends for him um, with with the concept of majority rule. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's incredibly dangerous.
0: Okay. Um, since you brought it up, how would you describe or relate to the tension between a Jewish democratic state? Do you have a vision for how that works? That's a very fair question. Um, yeah. So again, I'm,
1: I'm certainly only speaking to myself here, not for anyone else in the protest movement. I I've thought about this quite a lot, and I've and I can't say that I haven't that I don't change my mind from time to time, but. I would say that a Jewish and democratic state for me is a state where, firstly, the majority of the population is Jewish, um, where um, the public square is Jewish. Um, That is to say that the the national holidays, the national language, the national anthem, the flag, all represent Jewish um, traditions, Jewish religion, Jewish um, history. Um, that are state um, uh, national ceremonies, for example. Uh, I think it's. I think it's. Uh, even though I'm not, I, I I don't favor. I favor less rather than more religion in the public square. Nevertheless, I think it's um, entirely appropriate that, for example, on Yom Hazikaron, on our Memorial Day, um, is said. And Maler Rachamim is sung. That this isn't this is entirely uh, appropriate in my view. Um, and the democratic element is both um, the majority, the the, the form of uh, selecting, of uh, choosing a government uh, through representative, uh, free and fair elections, um, and also the liberal element that I mentioned earlier, which is um, checks and balances ensuring civil rights. Which means, of course, that non-Jewish citizens in Israel. Um, should have absolute equality before the law as individuals, um, not as a national group. I don't think that in the Jewish state, um, the Arab minority uh, should be able to claim that, for example, Arab holidays should have equal status with Jewish holidays, any more than in the country that I come from in the UK, um, where the head of state is is also the head of the Church of England, uh, it would be legitimate for Jews to demand that Rosh Hashanah be a public holiday um, rather than Christmas. Um, so uh, that's my that's my sort of in a nutshell, maybe rather a large nutshell <laughs> definition.
0: It's important to define these things, and I think even you know sometimes we have ideas in our heads or, or certain values that we carry with us that we don't have the opportunity to define into words, and I think it's often helpful to do that. I appreciate it. So look, I I think when it comes to this specific issue of the judicial reform battle, I get the sense that the pro-government forces, you know, those who voted for the parties that are currently in the coalition and advancing this legislation, you know, from their perspective, I, I think, first of all, there's this idea of democracy, meaning, hey, we voted, we wanted this. What's going on? How come we can't have this? Like, does our vote mean something? Uh, And I think there's also a lot of baggage there that many different groups are carrying with them. You know, we hear a lot about first Israel and second Israel. Personally, I think it's very problematic when we try to apply labels like left and right or religious and secular or liberal and conservative onto Israeli society. Uh, Both you and I come from Western countries. And I think that labels like that, words like that mean much more in the countries we come from and are much more expressive of things that really developed in Western civilization. You know, they have their roots in you know, whether we can say Christian dogma or uh, Greco-Roman thought or the revolutionary transition between feudalism and capitalism, like the idea of being a leftist or the idea of being a liberal or the idea of being a conservative means something deep in Western civilization. And I don't think that really fits all the time here. I think there's a, a certain number of parties or a certain sector of the Israeli population that might reflect a Western linear political spectrum. Uh, but then we somehow lose, I think, the Haredi parties. We lose the Palestinian parties. Uh, we lose the national religious parties. Uh, I think that you know if we're just going from maybe Meretz to Likud, then we can try to superimpose a Western linear political spectrum. But once we're dealing with the full gamut of Israeli society and Israeli politics, I think those labels become very not not just unhelpful, but maybe even counterproductive. Um, but but I think that there is this term that people have been using First Israel, which basically refers to Israel's, you know, westernized, typically Ashkenazi, typically less traditional ruling class, mostly, you know, kind of fortified in Tel Aviv and Kushdan. And then there's is second Israel, which is really a combination of groups that I think all have, at one point or another, experienced themselves as being marginalized by first Israel. We can include Mizrahim, Jews from Arab countries. We could include revisionist zionists whether it's the revisionist zionist party or the veterans of the etzel who felt marginalized in the early days of the state national religious you know the west bank jews uh, especially the more ideologically motivated west bank jews uh haredim uh, we might even be able to include ethiopians and uh russian-speaking israelis but there's certainly a number of groups that kind of all together make up what's called second israel and I think those groups, which are often superficially labelled the right, while well, first Israel is labelled the left, um, those groups really feel that they've been kept down and continue to be kept down despite the fact that they now have numbers. They now have electoral power that they believe should rightfully give them a louder voice in the public space.
1: Well, there's a lot there. Um, so... Firstly, I, I absolutely agree with you that left and right is, un, is, is in many respects unhelpful, and I think it's not it's not incidental that in the Israeli context, um, if we go back a few years before all this situation, left and right meant something very different in Israel to what it meant in the Western world. It was you know it was about positions so in, in the general conversation in Israel, left and right referred to people's opinions on. The, the Palestinian issue and 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 the issues of uh, of Judea and Samaria and uh, much more than it did on economic uh socioeconomic issues um as it does in the rest of the world so even there left and right meant something different in Israel. Uh, I think today um I don't even I just think left and right is is almost entirely useless. I think that even though um, both sides um, use it my side, of the debate of course talk about the right or the extreme right when referring to the government the government always the government and supporters always seem to talk about um the the left um when they're referring to um protesters which i think is also a quite convenient sort of convenient for them and, and a way of a way of um uh um Sort of disguising or, or ignoring the fact that actually the protest movement is much more diverse than that. Um, I, I would I would push back a little, um, actually a lot on on your point about these the argument sort of we voted for this um, um, and uh, our vote should count for something for the simple matter that I think I actually don't think. Everyone who voted for this government voted for this. I think that, firstly, I think that there's several polls which show something like 60 something percent of Israelis oppose the reforms. That doesn't mean they all they oppose. That doesn't mean they support the status quo. It doesn't mean they support the Supreme Court in its current guise. But they oppose these specific reforms. They think they go too far or whatever. And that includes a significant portion of, of Likud voters. And you also see that in the polls which show that. And this has been the case for the past four or five months. That if elections were held today, Netanyahu would not get anywhere close to a majority, Um, which I think shows that there are plenty of people who voted fully could at least, maybe not for Ben Gvir or Smotrich or the Haredim, but certainly fully could, who did not vote for this. And and Netanyahu, in typical fashion, um, campaigned before the election. Not on this at all. He campaigned on on cost of living. He campaigned on security on Iran, um, and he pointedly refused to get into the the, the the conversation about judicial reform when he was asked about it. Because Smotrich was talking about it um, when he was asked about it, he said, "Oh, this isn't something we want to get into is, yeah. now." Um, so I think that's uh, that. I, I don't think it's true to say that that everyone um, uh, who who voted for this coalition supports these reforms um second israel first israel um look i have two somewhat i don't know quite a contradictory but but um sort of different distinct thoughts on this the first is to say that i think that the people who define themselves as second israel um have every right um to feel aggrieved historically um in the israeli context um and i also see why they would identify um the judiciary, amongst other things, with um the first Israel that that oppressed them in certain ways. Uh and I actually think it's factually true um that uh there was a time not that long ago when the um when the Supreme Court, probably the judiciary more broadly, but the, but the Supreme Court also um was very much a um a sort of self-selecting. Um, group perpetuating a particular, um, with a few exceptions, perpetuating a, a, a sort of uh, first Israel elite class. But I think that has actually changed. I think that's, I think in the last 20 years or so, um, that's changed. I think that reforms that were made, uh, I think in 2009, when Gidon Saar was the justice minister, um, went some way to, to alleviating that. I think today's Supreme Court, I think is far more ideologically diverse um, than uh, both in both politically and religiously um than previous Supreme courts and I think the the I think and and Uribe Levine and others in the government know that and I think that they are um I think there's a certain amount of um disingenuousness going on in their in their claims um that the Supreme Court is still the same uh liberal leaning Elite that it always was I don't think it's that's the case um so, so, so I, I I understand the concerns of the sec- of the people who define themselves a second Israel, but I think that to a large extent their concerns relate to um, a, an Israel that was not necessarily that an Israel that is today. And I think that Netanyahu and others close to Netanyahu have been very skilled in perpetuating that continued sense of grievance, which I'm not sure is still um, as valid as it was.
0: Well let me ask you this. I mean when we look at Israel's socio-cultural trajectory, I think it's very clear that the Haredim are the fastest growing population between the river and the sea. That doesn't mean they'll all be Haredim in 30 years, but when mm-hmm. we look at birth rates of different sectors, uh, I think it's clear that the Haredim are the fastest growing population. Um national religious and Palestinian are probably tied for second. I'm not sure how fast what we would call liberal westernized First, Israel is growing, uh, certainly not competitively with the Haredim. So how would you respond to the accusations that basically a ruling class that is not able to muster electoral power and doesn't see itself as able to muster electoral power into the future is using the Supreme Court as a vehicle to hold on to power, despite the fact that the country is moving in a different direction?
1: Um. Well, again, I understand why it feels like that. I don't think it's—I don't think that's the case for a few reasons. One, I think there are—if—if you—if people care to look, there are cases of the Supreme Court um, ruling in ways which um, are which help the Haredim. So, for example, I mean, it's come up recently because of the debate around the reasonableness uh, standard that in the last government, the lapid uh, Bennett government. Um, uh, Abigdor Lieberman, as finance minister, probably the most uh hostile to Haredi to Haredim uh politician in, in mainstream Israel, um, uh, tried to pass uh a law which would have prevented uh Haredim from receiving uh child welfare payments in certain circumstances, and the Supreme Court ruled it, ruled against it on the grounds of reasonability. Um, I don't think it's the case that that, there, that, the, that the Supreme Court is resolutely anti. Faradi, As I said in my previous remarks, there are religious, uh, not Faradi, it's true, um, but certainly religious and also right-leaning uh, members of the Supreme Court these days. Um, so I don't think that's the case. I do think you you have touched on something which I think is absolutely right. I do think there's a fear on the part of, let's call it for the one of a better phrase, liberal Israel. Um, I do think there's a fear of the the demographic Shift that you that you refer to um and i th- think they are there that's definitely something that liberal israelis are worried about um and i think they probably would like to um have for example um legal uh certain it, le- it changes in the legal system in the in the system of basic laws that we have in the absence of a constitution um that would protect certain things which they fear would be under threat in the future. So um, let's say in the future that you, I think very accurately um, uh, predicted where the, or, or at least pointed towards uh, where the Haredim and the national religious are close to being a majority or getting to majority, then liberal Israel would be would feel much safer if there were entrenched constitutional uh laws which protected them from religious coercion of various kinds right um now those don't currently exist and in in the current system that we have it's hard to see how they would exist because we don't have a constitution and the basic laws that we have in lieu of a constitution can be just changed and made amended um uh by a simple majority in the knesset so uh i think it would be in the in the interests of uh and this is the irony actually uh, that some kind of reform, some kind of constitutional reform, would absolutely be in the interests of liberal Israel. But these particular reforms um, are pointing in the in the other direction, in the direction of uh, of majority. As I said, of majority um,
0: rule. Well, how would you feel about something along the lines of keeping the Supreme Court with the powers it currently has and the ability to override Knesset laws, et cetera, et cetera, but creating a standard where 50% of the Supreme Court has to be Dayanim, some Haredi, some national religious, maybe some Chabad, some Mizrahi, but you have 50% judges from the liberal, Western, academic, judicial system, and 50% who are rabbinic Dayanim, and that's our Supreme Court with the power that it currently has. How would you feel about that?
1: No, I wouldn't be in favor of that. I don't think um I don't think there's a place for religious judges in the in this in the civil Supreme Court. I think the the current system that we have where there are certain areas of of life which are in which the religious courts have authority, um I think is is I, actually, I, I mean that I think is also problematic in certain respects. and by the way, it's not it's not by chance that some that a lot of the religious people that have spoken out against the reforms are women um so there's a whole um group of religious datilumi mainly although I, there's also some karedim but mainly datilumi religious zionist women who who oppose the reforms because the supreme court has been their only um the only um body that they can turn to when they feel that the religious courts um have ruled in ways which are uh which which they which they see as um as i don't know uh, there's no other way of putting it from my perspective is Anti,
0: anti-women anti or misogynistic mm-hmm. right so i i think i'm i'm trying to peel away the layers here a little bit because i i think what's really at play here is conflicting ideological paradigms i think there are different sectors or we can call them different tribes of israeli society uh you know you you, you agree with me that terms like left and right are very unhelpful or maybe counterproductive when used to describe Israeli politics, especially to outsiders, because they don't mean what they mean in Europe. They don't mean what they mean in the United States or Canada or other parts of the world. But I think the same could be true for terms like religious and secular or liberal and conservative, Uh, meaning the distinction I see is actually those, and, and, and this might really relate to almost every contentious issue in Israeli society. I think there are those who are looking through the lens of Western liberalism and those who are looking at whatever social or political issue we're talking about through a lens of Jewish history or Torah. And there are others, by the way, who look at the same social and political issues through a lens of historical materialism, right? And they see a third thing. And I think that a lot of, you know, maybe what we need to take into consideration is we have these different tribes of Israeli society. And the one that's been dominant until now, we can call it the tribe of Yosef. I mean, in in the way I define these things, I I would actually identify this as the tribe of Yosef, which very much was Zionism, built the institutions of the country, built the economy, built the army, probably feels somewhat entitled to continue running the country uh, just based on their hard work over the last century, century and a half. But this tribe has also had an ideological paradigm and that's a paradigm that we can call liberalism and there are definitely people who identify as conservative or right or religious who look at the world through that paradigm Uh, and yet there are other paradigms and and I think I think part of the problem is and, and this is maybe typical of liberal capitalist societies is that often those who don't share that liberal ideological paradigm, who are not looking at social and political issues through that lens, are considered to be extremist, are considered to be beyond the pale. Whether they be Marxist, whether they be Haredim, whether they be serious Muslims, whether they be Jews like me, uh, or a guy like you know, they're considered to be outside of what's considered to be the safe mainstream liberal political discourse. And again, like, I think if we're having these discussions solely on the ideological terrain of liberalism, sure, all those people I mentioned are extremists and they're dangerous. But, you know, when you're looking at a society like Israel, where there's a growing population or several growing populations that are looking at issues through other ideological lenses that I happen to think are also valid lenses, I think it's important for a society to be able to make space and to acknowledge that until now, everybody has been considered okay as long as you can fit in to that broader liberal lens, that broader liberal ideological paradigm. I I think now, you know, maybe a higher level of diversity, in my opinion, is really making space for other ideological paradigms and to say not everybody has to have those set of values. And, And I think that's really what it comes down to. I think A lot of the people who are against this government and against its reforms are, for the most part, as you mentioned earlier, defining democracy as really a set of values. Like, we are like Europe. We are like America. We share those values. Whereas I think a lot of the people who are supportive of the government and are supportive of these reforms really see it more as a system of government. Uh, The way I would define it, honestly, I'd say democracy is a system that should empower people to influence the structures they live under uh, i'd like to see this country become fully democratic for jews for palestinians i don't think it's a secret that i support a one state solution that is both deeply jewish yet fully democratic and inclusive from the river to the sea and i think we can do that once we at least acknowledge the way Different ideological paradigms function, and how ideology can sometimes be deployed or even weaponized as tools of enforcing the interests of one group of people against others.
1: Okay, I think so. I agree with a lot of that actually. Um, um, I think that you're like, I, you're absolutely right, of course, that the, the builders of the state, the founders and builders of the state, um, who I think absolutely did see this through a liberal lens. Um, are 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 seeing, or their descendants, both literal descendants and ideological descendants, are seeing the country changing before their eyes, and it's um, concerning, disorienting, disorienting for them in certain ways. Um, now, some of those changes, I think, are frankly, and I say this as someone who defines as but finds myself as a liberal. Um, we're just gonna have to suck it up. Like it's it's the, you know, for example, and some of them, by the way, as a speaking as a liberal who also um, uh, is religious, at least according to my own definitions <laughs> and values religion, um, I see some of these changes as very um, positive. And I think the fact that Israel has become a more religious country in all kinds of ways, I think is a positive. I think that the fact that more, um, the, the the number of Israelis um, who would define themselves as secular in 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 the way that secular used to be used as a sort of defiantly anti-religious um, way of thinking? Uh, I think that that proportion of people is very small these days, uh, and I think it uh, partly, not entirely, but partly explains the the collapse of the the old left in Israel. Um, uh, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, the fact that the Israelis of, uh, who are not um, religious in the classic sense are flocking to to uh, to learn on Shavuot, on Erev Shavuot, Tikkun Lel, I think is an, an incredibly positive thing, right? So moves, moves away from the old secular anti-religious uh, liberalism, if you want to use that word, I think is not a terrible thing. Um, I, I actually think it's a good thing. Um, if we're talking about and Israel which is illiberal or anti-liberal, um, like some of the people that you mentioned, then I think we're in a different... Th- there are questions for me as to what that means for Israel, um, the type of country it'll be, and whether the people who are advocating those things have really thought through what it would mean for Israel. Uh, I'm not necessarily talking about you, <laughs> um, but... Um, but some of the other people uh including some of the politicians that you mentioned um, both in terms of what it would mean for Israel Israel you know Israel is not uh, in the literal sense a nation that dwells alone we're a part of a community of nations um and our strongest relationships um are with democratic countries that doesn't mean we don't have issues with those countries as is well known and documented and and I sh- and I certainly have my own criticisms of the way many of those countries relate to Israel. But nevertheless, our strong relations with those countries are in many respects, um, connected to our, um, our perceived, uh, real or perceived, uh, shared, uh, shared liberal democratic values. And if we are no longer in that camp, um, then we need to, uh, then we need to be clear about what that means. And for example, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, who is the prime minister and leader of the camp, which is moving Israel, in my view, or at least, away from that would, would never admit that. And whenever he speaks in English on um, to American or British uh, interviewers, uh, he makes a point of of stressing his own. I've seen I, you can look online. There's a bunch of these examples in recent months where he's had to defend uh, the judicial reform um on cnn or bbc or wherever he stresses his own personal liberal democratic credentials um so uh it, you know if that is the case that they want to move israel away from that they need to face up to that and they're going to have to start being honest about it um and 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 then face the consequences from uh from from uh, from our allies when they do that um and and the second way i think they have to face the consequences is i'm not sure they know what it necessarily would mean uh, for Israel to be um less liberal uh, because it's all very well if they want to implement this or that um policy through a as you said uh non-liberal let's say religious Jewish Paradigm but as you know uh, I'm sure probably better than me um there's not a uh, an agreed-upon definition as to what that Jewish Paradigm might be and someone there might be someone else who has a very different view to betzelos motrich of what the jewish paradigm that israel should be uh following or or, or, or implementing its policies uh through uh, what that paradigm should be so i think that um what what liberalism allows at least liberalism as i would define it is a plurality of voices uh i don't think we've always lived up to that i'm not i don't claim that my side um, has always been um, fair in the way these things have been done, and certainly not respectful enough um, in terms of, in the way that it's related to religious or or it's certainly Haredi um, Jews. I'm probably guilty of that myself. I think you know. I think we do have to think more carefully about these kinds of issues. Um, just an example that comes to mind: um, the Supreme Court ruled against um separation between men and women in public spaces um which you know was a huge problem for Haredim in certain circumstances not just Haredim also I think some people in the religious Zionist um camp as well um and I'm not sure it's right that the Supreme Court should be saying that in every instance um the liberal value of no separation of men and women uh should should be uh should be enforced um uh, when when you have a if you have a, a population that wants it um where non-religious um or people that that don't want it are not going to be adversely affected i think there needs to be more um um respect shown um empathy um understanding uh tolerance it's not a word i particularly like but tolerance um, in, in these sort of situations. And I would like to think that that will change the more we get, um, the more diversity we get in the judiciary. And I think there is scope for that without massive fundamental changes, maybe some small changes, but not the changes the government is, is, is pushing through. Um, so I, 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 I think that liberalism allow a properly implemented properly exercise allows for, a, for a, a, plur, a pluralism, which the others, the, the uh the strictly the strictly religious or strictly jewish paradigm would not allow and that that would be my that would be that's why i think that liberalism is um is would be the system that i would favor
0: i would certainly argue that the challenge that really should be posed to the jewish forces whether it's people like smotrich or avima oz or their voters is Can we, the Jews who want a Jewish state that expresses Jewish identity and its policies and institutions, who might not see the value in Western liberalism in our society, can we formulate answers to real contemporary issues that affect human beings that could compete with the Western liberal answers on their own ideological turf? I mean, until now... I think a lot of what you would define as the anti-liberal forces or or the the forces pushing for more overt Jewishness. I I think until now, they've simply rejected the liberal Western answers to a lot of these questions without coming up with Jewish answers as counterpoints, without saying, hey, wait Mm -hmm. a minute this might be a uniquely Jewish way to address this problem or this person's needs or this new you know, social phenomenon in society, etc. Uh, instead of just rejecting it. Uh, because I think to a certain extent, and it's not 100% wrong, there are a lot of Israelis who really do see rapid Westernization in Israeli society, what I would call cultural imperialism, attempts to make Israel, not just from the outside, but also from the inside. Uh, those who want to exist as an outpost of Western civilization, uh, like an extension of American power. And and I think that is, or or that seems to be, the perspective expressed by first Israel, that that's what Israel is meant to be. Israel is meant to be, you know, as Ehud Barak famously said, a villa in the jungle. Inferring that all of our neighbors are these kind of backward savages Whereas Israel Mm -hmm. is this island of enlightened Western liberalism. Mm -hmm. I -hmm. I think that, you know, as time goes on, we're going to see more and more forces in Israeli society push back against that. I think it's inevitable. I'd like to find ways for us to live together, again, in the spirit of Tisha B'Av and the lessons learned from previous catastrophes that we've endured. I, I think it really behooves us to try and find maybe new models that can help us live together in a way that everybody is feeling their values, you know, centered, um, at least locally. You know, one of the solutions I see kicked around online is this idea of some kind of federalism, you know, where the Israelis of Tel Aviv get to live according to the values of Western liberalism and the Jews in other parts of the country, especially, let's say, certain parts of the West Bank, get to live differently and the yeah. and Bnei Brak get to live a third way, and Palestinians get to live a fourth way, and we might all share a layer of identity. Like, for this to work, there would have to be a strong, especially amongst the Jews I'm talking about, that there would definitely need to be a strong shared layer of identity. But maybe there's certain ways that I would like to live in Yehuda that I don't need to impose on people in North Tel Aviv, and vice versa.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think with I mean I'd I, I wouldn't have a problem with what you're with the, the federal idea you're proposing, but I think as long as I think there need to be certain red lines. Um so I don't I don't think I I would not want there to be a situation where um there's a part of Israel, um, which is let's say uh, the, the a Haredi part or a religious or a religious Muslim part or whatever where in those places um uh someone who's you know some someone who's gay would have would have to go to prison right or that there's you know that there that some kind of different you know some i mean i i I use the gay example because i think it's actually a pretty it's not a bad example where um western liberalism and more traditional um jewish and muslim ideas sort of clash in certain ways so i think you know i agree with the idea of a of a less centralized Israel um where there's more attention paid to the local the the, the needs and and wishes of the local um population and 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 that's some, that relates to my point earlier about having uh, about not having to have the liberal notion of mixing men and women in every situation um in every part of Israel uh, there are places where you where you don't need that um, I, don't wa- I don't want a situation, as is currently the case, sometimes where you get on a bus, a public egged bus, to Bnei Barak, um, that, or that's going to Bnei amongst other places, and the Haredim on the bus um, uh, scream and shout at uh, men and women sitting next to each other. I don't think that's right, and that shouldn't be the case. On the other hand, um, if you had a public bus that is only serving a Haredi, uh, population within a Haredi, uh, area of Israel, um, I don't personally have a problem with them saying we don't, men and women shouldn't be sitting next to each other. And we're, we have, that's what we want. And just because it's a publicly funded bus, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be allowed to do that. Um, so yeah, I, I'm with certain, as I said, with certain red lines, <laughs> I'm, I'm okay with that idea. I think there's, there's a lot to be said for it.
0: Right. It might actually be the best way of preserving something substantial for first Israel, you know, moving into the decades ahead.
1: Right. And look, I mean, as the current situation around Shabbat, for example, around public transportation on Shabbat, it's the the liberal side that's trying to make things more um, local, more more locally with more local autonomy. The liberal side has been saying for years that in uh, in areas where the majority want it, there should be buses running on Shabbat.
0: But um the problem with that is that it would cause us like let's say let's say we were to do that we were to let those let's for lack of a better idea tel aviv right for lack of a better yeah word. um in tel aviv there's public transportation on shabbat the shopping malls are open on shabbat to a certain extent that would feel to me as if i'm abandoning working class people in tel aviv because shabbat more than anything else is really a class issue here meaning that bus driver Uh, You know, the one day a week his children are home from school is Shabbat. Uh, That guy who has to work retail in the mall, the one day a week his children are home from school is Shabbat. And what we're basically doing by opening up Shabbat, you know, we're allowing rich people to go shopping. But we're not thinking about the bus driver or the Eh. person working retail who, yeah, he can be incentivized to take another day off that week. That's true. But it's not the day his kids are home.
1: Meaning- right so I, I I think I think you raise a really good point but I, I think it cuts both ways so I think there needs to be a certain amount of of I think there needs to be some nuance to this so rather than saying that that Shabbat's just a just a regular day in let's say in this hypothetical scenario of Tel Aviv uh, where everything is open and it's just a regular day I I'm I'm not in favor of that um but what, but I think that the bus, that the public transportation system uh situate current situation disproportionately harms um people with people with with less money with poorer people because if you're not shomay shabbat and you don't and let's say you don't have a car then you have to then you can't get a, you can't get about on shabbat only people that kind of only people that, that have a car can get about on shabbat um if they if they're without public transportation so i think that there's it's it's the, the 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 working class issue or the socioeconomic issue also plays uh plays into into that side of the argument
0: Unless, of course, those are the people who would be forced to go to work on Shabbat, which is what would likely happen if we were to transform Shabbat into a normal day in those places.
1: I would favor uh, something along the lines of um, the, uh, you know, the um, gavison Maidan uh, agreement.
0: I'm familiar with it, but I don't remember the details. So,
1: right. So so I don't remember all the details, but, but effectively this, uh, for listeners, this was an agreement made by a law professor, Ruth Gavison, um, who defined herself as a liberal and uh, and uh, Rabbi uh, Yaakov Meydan uh, Dati Lumi, very uh, impressive and, and, and uh, important um, uh, religious Zionist rabbi, where they came to all kinds of compromises on how they how and an Israel could look that was that didn't satisfy the demands all the demands of either secular or religious Israelis, but but went some way to to achieving both. So on Shabbat, the idea was, if I remember rightly, that um, places of commerce would be closed, including shopping malls, but places of entertainment like cinemas and theaters would be open. Um, and there'd be, and I think that, and there'd be some sort of, uh, on thing, you know, that obviously there's some places which, to which both of those things could be uh, applied, right? Like a restaurant or a bar, or whatever. In which case, you'd have to, you'd have some places that were open, some places were closed, which is how it currently is, of course. The places that have a a kashrut license are closed on Shabbat. And places that are that, that and there are places that that are open on Shabbat that are of course don't have a uh cash license so um I am in favor of something like that but the public transportation issue I think is particularly um uh is particularly uh, problematic for people that are that don't keep Shabbat um and they would say in places like Tel Aviv listen we're the majority um by a large margin um those of us that that, that, would, that would be willing to use a bus on Shabbat. And it's not fair that we can't because um, that's what the central government says.
0: So I think you, you bring up a good example by pointing to Rav Medan, because Rav Medan is a great example of what I'm talking about. He's someone who can be defined as religious, right wing, conservative, yet he might be looking at reality, for the most part, through a liberal Western paradigm. Uh, Interesting. Meaning I'd be much more impressed if Ruth Gavison sat with Rav Tal or Rav Lior <laughs> or a Haredi leader, uh, because they're looking at the world through a different path. That's, I think, where I'm at right now. I think that the different tribes of Israeli society need to make efforts to engage, not like the tokens in other camps who for the most part can share my worldview, but those who definitely don't share my worldview. Because there are very powerful worldviews in the different tribes of Israel seem to be in direct competition and if we don't address that we don't address the fact that there are people in this country who who serve in the army who contribute to the country who have a very different way of looking at history um political issues social issues etc and i don't engage them right and i just keep uh, shouting against them that they're ruining the country they're ruining the country they're running you know ultimately that can spiral into a violent situation. You know, right now, it's true that first Israel, or what we can call Western Israel, liberal Israel, whatever term you want to use, it still controls the army, still controls the police, still controls the economy, still controls the Mossad and the Shabak. So if there was a confrontation right now, it's very clear that that side would win. I think that was made clear during this current episode that we're in. Like it was only a couple months ago, like right before Pesach, that all all of the major institutions of the country security establishment economy media etc said no we are going to stop the government from doing this and then- right
1: i mean i, I yeah I, I have a different take on that my my take on that is that that was that came after netanyahu um fired galant after galant made galant made galant was as as defense minister made a statement saying that this was harming national security and he was fi- and he was fired for it and i think that it per, per, my personal view is it's entirely appropriate that the, the the security establishment and other people connected to the security establishment would say it's outrageous that, this, that the defense minister is fired for doing his job of warning about a national security threat and that and like that to me that's it that 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 i think i guess this is probably where we we're not going to agree or, or where it's, you know, it gets, it gets to the, to the different perspectives on this. For me, the, the, the Netanyahu and this government are, um, they're not just reflecting the desire of these, some of these people to change the paradigm, although that as well, I think they are also, um, I mean, in Netanyahu's case, he has a very obvious personal need um for these uh, changes I don't it's not a coincidence that he that he was blocking these kinds of changes a few years ago um and has come around to supporting them um when it's it's very much in his personal interest to do so um but I think that the there is a uh, um there's a lot of good old-fashioned um power grabbing going on um from some of these people in the government um And and I think that's so. I I just think a lot of the the a lot of their claims. You know, when Netanyahu, if Net, when Netanyahu talks about his sympathy for for second Israel, I don't give it a lot of credence. I'll be honest.
0: I'll be honest. When it comes to Netanyahu, uh, my position has shifted on him in recent years. I I think he intentionally creates a lot of ambiguity around whether he's an ideologue or just a self-serving political animal. Uh, I think he Mm. creates space for people to see him as the latter. I've begun to suspect more and more he's the former in recent years. Not that I've ever voted for him or or ever planned to. Um, I think there are issues that we're too far apart on. But uh, it was really his speech, actually, when Bennett and Lapid took power. You know when the, there was that turnover and and Netanyahu as you know coming into the opposition, there's something about his speech, and I don't even remember the exact words, but something about his speech suddenly made it clear to me that he's very like on the low, seen himself as protecting the state of Israel from the Americans through the Obama and Trump administrations, and was like very much like focused. On, um, on doing that in a way that's very different from people like Menachem Begin or Yitzhak Shamir. I think first time in office, Netanyahu really tried to be Shamir. He tried to stand up to Clinton and he got beaten. Um, I think when he came back in 2009, he adopted a very different uh, way of operating that is a lot uglier and maybe looks kind of slimy, but at the same time, it's different for him. Meaning he's like consistently managed to slip through the fingers of whatever American president he's had to deal with.
1: Yeah, I, I think Netanyahu. Look, he's a complicated character, <laughs> and there's there's a lot to him. Um, he's not. You, I don't think he can be easily caricatured. He's not. Despite the the comparison that's often made between Netanyahu and Trump, especially by people on my side, I don't think that's accurate at all. Um, he's a ve- he's a very complicated. Uh, character. He's, you know, on the one hand, he's incredibly um, intelligent and knowledgeable, and um, and a, and a serious thinker on all kinds of issues. Um, on the other hand, he's a deeply political person, and I think that that drives him above all. I, I was very convinced by a conversation I I had not that long ago, actually, with a, a political scientist who's written a lot about the. Um, uh, developments on the Israeli right. Um, and she said that if you look at Netanyahu's, um, like th- the way Netanyahu has worked in, in the last 10 years or so, he's very, um, he's made a, a concerted effort to emphasize, um, the Jewish, um, Jewish over Israeli as a, as a identity. And also in, in many respects, Jewish over democratic and and it's and it's been very helpful for him um electorally because it means that he can um if he can if he portrays himself successfully as the defender of jewish israel then he so then he he has the Haredim, and the religious zionists and the and the mesur and the mizrachim um the more traditional um sephari jews um and that's and and that and he has that sort of locked up coalition it's Electorally, very useful for him, and I and I. It's very hard for me to see Netanyahu outside of his own um, uh, opportunistic personal uh, needs these days. Unfortunately,
0: perhaps again, I don't. Uh, I don't claim to know what's going on in his head. Fair enough. no, me neither. I, I cut him a lot more slack than I used to, and I don't deny that we could both be right. Meaning, I think that he could be somebody who has an ideology. If I were to guess what that ideology is, it would be revisionist Zionism. And I think he, he tries to advance the tenet in Israeli society as he sees it, uh, using politics. I think an argument could be made that he really sees himself as the most capable leader when it comes to protecting Israel, when it comes to protecting our land, when it comes to protecting our interests. I'm assuming he genuinely believes it's in our interest to keep the lands that we won in 1967, or at least those that we have left. And uh, he might not be able to see any other leader on the horizon who could protect uh, the land of Israel and the people of Israel in the way that he believes that he can. Uh, I wish Yitzhak Shamir was better at the political game and was able to stay in power longer. Meaning sometimes Mm -hmm. a a leader who's good at at doing his job and protecting his people and and charting a certain course has an obligation to play the political game in such a way where he will remain in power. But uh, again, I, I, I could be wrong when it comes to Bibi.
1: Yeah no, I think I, I yeah your guess is as good as mine. Um, and I do, by the way, I, I to give him a little bit of credit. Look, I, I do think that revisionism is is. I mean, it's obviously part of his of his ideological background and his father and everything else. Um, I, I think he is, and like many people, of course, not just Bibi, he's selective in what he takes from it. He certainly doesn't take all of Jabotinsky. Um, otherwise, I'd argue he wouldn't be pursuing this judicial reform, um, but he, um, but yeah, I think that the the element of uh, revisionist Zionism, which is very suspicious of um, of the outside world, which believes that we absolutely, in every situation, need to be able to stand on our own two feet and not rely on anyone else, um, I think is is very strong in Netanyahu. And I, I have a lot of sympathy with that view, as it happens. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I just think I, again, I, I just, I'm, I'm not sure how much of his, of this current iteration of Bibi is, um, is ideological, but we can, we can, uh, I'm happy to leave it there on him.
0: (laughs) Well, at the end of the day, I think the real problem with Bibi is that he appears to be empowering these other, what's often referred to as dark forces in Israeli society. You know, it's not Bibi that scares people. It's Smoltric, it's Ben Gvir, it's, Avi Maoz, it's the Haredim, like, that's what's scary. You know, Bibi is just the guy enabling, and therefore he might be easier to attack sometimes. And I think there is, like, like I'm, by the way, I'm, even though I would say that I come from the same ideological background as someone like Smoltrich or Maoz, meaning I'm dealing with the same ideological building blocks as they are. I have the same understanding of Jewish history. I probably have the same interpretation of the Torah. I have the same understanding of our connection to this land, the purpose of us coming back here after 2000 years. Yet, I think I've come to radically different political conclusions than they have. Uh, but again, using the same ideological building blocks. Like, I just don't think that a guy like Betzelos Motrich has asked the same questions I've asked when it comes to Palestinian issues, for example. I guess I would separate between identity and politics. Meaning I say I share an identity with many of the people in that party and their voters but I have very different political conclusions. And, uh, and and I think this is maybe what makes me interesting to a lot of my Palestinian friends. Like they see me as somebody who really represents the ideological Jews in the West Bank, yet I've just come to different conclusions and see more of a value in us forging relationships and, and moving forward together. Uh, because I don't think either of us are going anywhere. So I, I guess I'm hopeful that this part, the, the sector of Israeli society that I belong to, maybe just because I live in that sector and I send my kids to school in that sector and I teach in those institutions, I, I'm hopeful that it can evolve also, that there are certain issues that can be fluid in that sector of society, within that tribe, and that, you know what, I, I look at it like this. In the Tanakh, our first three kings are Shaul, David, and Shlomo, right? Mm-hmm. So I would say Shaul is Zionism. Sha'ul very much, our first king, was very focused on the unity of our people, on the material well-being of our people, defense, economy, etc. That was basically it. Sha'ul did not seem to have any interest in building a temple. Sha'ul did not necessarily have an interest in um, the Jewishness being expressed in different policies or institutions. Sha'ul wanted good for the Jewish people, unity for the Jewish people, security for the Jewish people. David, I would see as more of somebody coming from the national religious camp, somebody who is uh, probably voting for Smoltrich, somebody who you know serves in elite combat units in the army, somebody who is willing to give his life for the land of Israel, and somebody who ultimately wants to build a temple in Jerusalem, but just can't do it, doesn't know how to advance Jewish history forward. Uh, and then Shlomo, I would refer to as Hebrew universalism. Shlomo has the identity of David, but is facing outward and desires a relationship with the rest of humanity and is actually trying to position Israel in a positive way on the international stage, uh, you know, in, in a way that's productive and helpful to the rest of mankind. And I, I think what's happening in Israeli society is that we're shifting from Sha'ul to David, and it's very scary for the Sha'ul people uh, but ultimately, for me, the goal is not to go back to Shaul. the goal is to get to Shlomo. And one of the things that we see just looking at the Tanakh, uh, when we look at the transition from David's reign to Shlomo's, the last major political act of David uh, that I find very interesting is he recognizes and tries to address the crimes of Zionism against the Palestinians meaning the crimes of Shaul against the Givonim, against the non-Jews living under Shaul's reign. And ultimately, I think in order for the national religious camp to be able to advance and progress to become what they want to become, like they want to be a leader. They feel like, you know, it's too long. We've been kind of uh, like an appendage to the Zionist movement. We want to be in a leadership role. But in order to be a leader, I think they really need to confront how the non-Jews living in our land have suffered under Zionism and really try to figure out, based on their own values, a way to make that right, a way to address that and rectify it.
1: That's that's really I I like that very much. Um, I actually was going to say before you got to the bit about um, uh, how David at the end of his life is is de- is dealing with the Palestinian issue, right? <laughs> in, in, in hypothetically um, or allegorically. Um, um, I was going to say that the difference between David and Smotrich, who you made the comparison with earlier, is I think David has has much greater self-reflection and humility than I've seen in Batello Smotrich. But, but yes, I think the, um, I, I like that very much. I
0: keep saying Smotrich only because he is the political leader of that party right now. Right, right. fair he, enough. I, what I really mean is his voters. And I think there are a lot of people who vote for Batello Smotrich who really do have a lot of self-reflection. And I agree. I, I agree,
1: I, I know many of them myself, I agree. I, I, I By the way, I, I think it should be, uh, this is an important point actually that you just mentioned in passing there, which is I think we should always be careful of not equating um, parties with their voters and leaders with their voters. I'm my, um, the, the very strong negative feelings that I have for many of the politicians um, in the parties that I oppose um, is not, uh, I do not have the same feelings towards the people who voted for them or at least i try not to it's it's a it's one of my i i'm try to be very careful not to make assumptions about why people vote for certain parties i think that's very important um i i also think i i i you probably won't like this but i wonder when you when you 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 said earlier very interestingly you said how you share the same basic um ideological building blocks as um the likes of smotrich uh, and Mahóz, but you reach different conclusions um and i wonder if um that's partly because you unlike them um had a liberal western education
0: it could be you know my my education is more than just the schools i went to like i born, sure. you know i'm born and raised in new york city mostly with irish and albanian kids so I would say everything I know about politics I learned, you know, in a pretty rough setting. I would say mm-hmm. that nations are really just gangs with more expensive weapons.
1: Mm-hmm. I
0: also happen to be of the belief that um, I think it's fairer to say that I have a much more uh, maybe multicultural background. You know, I've seen more of the world. I speak English. I'm certainly not as provincial as they are.
1: Yeah, I I, I think not not to compare you to him, but um, I think there's an interesting. Uh, comparison to be made between, if you if you read Meir Kahana on democracy, speaking about de- read about democracy, and then you listen to someone like Itamar ben who would count himself as a as a disciple or student of Meir Kahana, um, it I mean Kahana's understanding of democracy is like it's so much more sophisticated and and deep and advanced. The is it's it's i mean there's no there's simply no comparison i mean kahana understands it and rejects it in the israeli context mm-hmm. um uh, but he's not but i mean it's it's a very different it's completely different i mean to listen to the to, to read kahana to read about democracy and to listen to bengavir about democracy because kahana grew up in the united states right. um i don't think i don't think that's um incidental
0: right. i think that's a fair point uh, also i think part of it is just that i've struggled with these questions Fair enough. My wife, for example, is a pioneer in what's called post-colonial Jewish feminist theory. And that might be, by the way, one of the major distinctions in how you and I look at a lot of these issues. You know, like you keep bringing up the role of religion or religious law or et cetera, whereas I'm primarily relating to the Jewish people as an ancient civilization that was destroyed, yet had and could have many different components, like a legal component, a national component, a territorial component, a uh, spiritual component, a ritual component. And I think that, you know, in the diaspora, especially in Europe, a lot of that was was kind of reduced to a religion called Judaism. Uh, But really, you know, if if you and I, let's say your dog were to damage my bicycle and we were to go to court in Jerusalem and the judge would rule according to Babakama instead of according to British common law, Uh, I wouldn't see that as religious in any way, shape or form. I would just think that Bava Kama would simply express the way our people interpret justice in a situation where one person's property damages another, and that's unique to our civilization. That would be the legal structure or the legal theory of our civilization, as opposed to Ottoman Turkey or the UK. Uh, And I think that for the Jewish people, and, and maybe even for the Palestinian people, The way Jewish law developed over the centuries could be more relevant than how British or Ottoman law uh, developed. Uh, So I I think it's important to not throw all of these things from our history into the into the box of religion. I think there there are certain things that could be defined as religious. But for the most part, um, I think that, you know, we came back to life after 2000 years in order to rebuild Hebrew civilization. And uh, until now, there have been a lot of things we've been afraid to unpack. Uh, I think that uh, we have yet to have a real serious post-colonial conversation, a uh, conversation about our trauma, what we've been through over the last 2000 years, uh, especially Ashkenazim, because we were, we were the victims of, of cycles of traumatic persecution, century after century after century, that we haven't healed from in any way, shape or form. We just have guns in our hands now. And I think that we're not going to be able to use those guns properly or justly until we actually address the trauma that we've experienced. I think we also have to have a real conversation and, and maybe this whole episode of the judicial reform fights will lead us to this conversation. We need to have a national conversation about what kind of society we're trying to create. What are the values? Yeah. What's the identity? Um and, and I think that's really the scary thing. You know, what's his name? Gilad Sher, you know, he he's a close confidant of Ehud Barak. He went on yeah. the Aritz podcast a few weeks ago and started talking about how these protests or the funding for the protests was really organized. Not when the judicial reform issue started, but really after the elections, before the government was even formed. Meaning I think that after the elections in November, it was very clear to a lot of people that there's a danger. That suddenly, you know, we need to stop this group of people from taking power because we don't know where they're going to take us and it just happened to be that judicial reform was the issue that everybody could you know make noise about and create mass protests over but but i think it's honestly much deeper i think it's much more about the identity of the country where it's going um our inability to really communicate with each other on a deep level um, like i hope that even this conversation between you and i is one where we're not just you know arguing about like surface data or facts but we're actually going into the depth of what might be motivating people on different sides of this debate
1: yeah I I look I definitely I think there's always value in these kinds of conversations for exactly the reasons that you've just said I actually um, quite early on in this uh, whole saga when uh, I'm you know I'm as, as you know I'm active on Facebook and on social media um, posting my, uh, my my views which are which some people love and many others hate um, on these issues and one of the people that really doesn't like um what I write on these issues who's very much um supportive of the of the reform is and is even professionally involved actually um in uh, in one of the in one of in the main organization um that the outside organization that's been uh, supporting these uh, reforms Kohelet. um but she's a she's an old friend and um we we arranged to meet for a coffee um because we wanted to like See each other in person and see the human being behind, <laughs> behind the behind the behind the writing and the Facebook posts, and uh, and talk it through. And we didn't convince the other one, but I think on on a, on at least a couple of issues, um, we understood more where the other person was coming from. And I think that that in itself was made it worthwhile. Um, so I yeah I, I think these types of conversations are are really important. I think the if this um, crazy situation um, does lead us to the national conversation that you're talking about then i think it will be uh, then you know it'll be more than a silver lining it will be that will really be um an incredible thing um uh, i would like to think it's the case i don't know um if uh, with the country so so polarized um whether it's possible to have that conversation right now on the other hand maybe um it's only this kind of crisis which can uh, bring enough people into the conversation in order to have it. I mean, it's certainly the case that on, on my side of the argument, um, you know, there are people who were completely disconnected from politics and the political conversation who've been brought into it um, as a result of this. People who are, de- you know, people who are part of the protest movement, who are part of the whatever it is, 300,000, 400,000 people coming out on the streets every multi Shabbat, um, who never in their lives have, have taken part in a political um, demonstration of any kind. Um, and I think that speaks to uh, speaks to something that sort of awakened the population in certain ways. The same, I'm sure, could be said uh, for people that that came out when the uh, the pro-government side had their had their big counter-protests, whenever it was, a couple of months ago. Um, so yeah, um, it's uh, the, these uh, the national conversation does need to be had, and maybe maybe this is what was needed to uh, to push it forward.
0: Yeah, generally speaking, I think that Israeli society is very good at responding to short-term crises, uh, but not really great at long-term planning. 100% agree. (laughs) So maybe you're right. Uh, Anyway, Paul, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. It's a pleasure to speak to you. Can you tell our listeners where they could find your writing, your work?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, I have a blog on the Times of Israel. So if you go to the Times of Israel blog section and search me, I write... I I write there, if you, um, I've also written for uh, a British journal which deals with the Middle East and Israel called Fathom Uh, so the Fathom journal has a bunch of my, a bunch of my longer pieces, uh, my essays Um, and yeah if you just google me and write Israel um, you'll get a lot of my stuff, There's there's actually a Canadian actor with the same name as me, so if you just write my name, <laughs> you'll just get a lot of stuff about him. But if you write Paul Cross in Israel, then you'll get my stuff. Um, but thank you very much uh, for the opportunity. It's a, it's a pleasure. Uh, it's been a long time since we spoke, so um, it's, uh, uh, it's been a great, uh, great experience for me as well. Thank you very much.
0: All right. So thanks for coming on, uh, listeners. If you want to check out the show notes for this episode, you can go to uh, visionmag.org/backslash/the-next-stage-102.